take your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again, please, to the 25th chapter of Matthew, Matthew 25. And as you're turning there, let me express how how meaningful it is to me to um, drive into your parking lot this morning and to see so many cars and to come into this beautiful meeting place that the Lord so wonderfully provided for y'all and to see so many faces here, uh, many of which I don't recognize. And, and I, I'm um, thankful for all that the Lord has done. It's hard to believe that six years have passed since Emmanuel Church, Winston-Salem, constituted. And it's wonderful to see and to read about and hear about the various signs of flourishing that God has been uh, pleased to bless you with. It's a real privilege to be with you this morning. When Jesus Christ comes in his glory, according to Matthew 25, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all nations, uh, verses 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2 and verse 16, speaking of that day, says that according to his gospel, God will then judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You will be there on that day, and I will be there on that day. Uh, our children will be there. Our grandchildren will be there. Standing before the omniscient Lord, uh, we will each give an accounting. And that certain uh, future appointment can cause some disquieting thoughts among God's people, especially among those that are more sensitive in their makeup. Because we recognize that the Bible teaches that the great day will reveal everything, both good and bad. And as I've just quoted from Romans 2 and verse 16, it's not just everything that has been done, uh, but not just things that have been said, but even, even the things within, the secret things, the motives of our hearts, the imaginings of our minds, the ways in which our cravings have expressed themselves within as well as without. And the Bible draws attention in more than one passage to the day of judgment being a day in which those things that were secret will be, as it were, shouted forth from the rooftops. Uh, there will be a public character to the judgment day. All the nations will be gathered there and Christ our maker and Christ the judge and the savior of his own will, will then uh, render a verdict upon our lives in which there will be uh, evidence showed that, that warrants uh, that verdict and demonstrates how, how just it is. And again, it can be troubling to some of God's people to think, well, in that day, when we stand before our Lord, knowing the people that we've been, 
the things that we've said, the things that we've done, the things that we've thought, uh, will there be some moment at least of exposure? Uh, will there be some element of shame that will uh, be a part of that day? We realize that we're forgiven. I have so enjoyed worshiping with you this morning and all of the songs that we sang were just, I had my name on them this morning. It was just really good for me to enter into the things that we were affirming in song. Uh, the grace that is greater than all of our sin. Uh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. That's the testimony of, of all those who are in Christ by way of faith and repentance. And we glory in that. We cling to that. That is a lifeline. That is, that is an anchor for us in the storm of our own uh, sin. But will there be in measure, uh, even amidst the context of having been forgiven, will there be some exposure uh, that the righteous will experience uh, on that day of judgment? We think of a text like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, which states this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or uh, the way in which the book of Ecclesiastes comes to a close in verse 14 of chapter 12, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. A very insightful pastor, uh, <coughs> a contemporary, uh, one that has been a real blessing to me, uh, wrote a book on heaven, which uh, I just found extremely edifying. But he commented as following on, on this matter of, will there be some exposure of the bad that the righteous will experience as part of uh, the day of judgment. And this pastor made this comment. Remember when Peter denied the Lord and, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter? Uh, <coughs> that's in Luke 22, uh, 66 to 1. This pastor continues, this face-to-face -face encounter with Christ and his sin was so painful that Peter wept bitterly. So, this pastor continues, will we weep on judgment for our many failures? But then the Lord will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will never weep again. And nor will we feel any pain, shame, or regret. Revelation 21 verse 4. We will have a perfect memory, but no pain. Now, the same pastor uh, happily affirms there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ bore the punishment uh, of the sins of his people at the cross. And for them, uh, the pastor emphasizes this pain, this weeping, like unto what Peter experienced after his grievous sin. It will only be momentary. It will be evident to all that an atonement has been made for those iniquities. 
But again, I ask the question, will there be some exposure of the evil about us at the day? Uh, Will there be some experience of shame for the followers of Christ, however much it is conspicuous that they have been gloriously redeemed? My understanding of Scripture, and this is what this message is about this morning, the answer to both of those questions is no. There will not be an exposure of sin for the people of Christ in the day of judgment. There will not be, even for a moment, uh, any experience of shame on that great coming day. And the following four reasons demonstrate, I believe, the position that I have stated. First, when the New Testament draws attention to Christ speaking to his people on the final day, he says nothing but words of affirmation. When the New Testament draws explicit attention to Jesus speaking to his own people on that great and final day of judgment, what we see is our Lord saying nothing but words of affirmation. In the parable of the talents, which we read together earlier in Matthew 25, verses 14 and following, and as Pastor Mike brought out, um, evidently this was the passage that y'all studied in the Sunday school hour earlier. But in that parable of the talents, Jesus emphasized the need to be faithful. And Jesus pictured a master returning after a long absence in order to settle accounts with three servants to whom he had entrusted some measure of talent. One servant servant was slothful, was wicked. He was condemned and punished. The other two were diligent. They were faithful. They acted as those who sincerely had an interest in their master's concerns. They wanted to see the master's interests promoted and They are both commended and they are rewarded. Well done, good and faithful servants. Now, one of the faithful servants produced more than twice as much as the other faithful servant, but the master had given him more to work with. But both men receive only words of commendation. They are praised for for work well done, and in this particular scene, they actually received the same praise, the identical praise, even though one had been so much more fruitful than the other. But note, neither one of the faithful servants received a word of criticism. Now, when we stop and think, uh, considering maybe a passage like Revelation 2 and 3, where the risen Lord is Uh, speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor and and is addressing them. Generally what we find uh, in in those messages to the churches of Asia Minor is a mix of affirmation and criticism. And and surely that's appropriate. Uh, the, The bride of Christ in this world has many blemishes, many spots, many wrinkles, whether you view us corporately as a church or individually, there are always plenty of flaws 
and blemishes that can be justly pointed out. We recognize that. But here, according to the parable of the talents, there's not a word of censure for the two who were faithful. The only one who hears words of condemnation is the one who was wicked. Consider the passage that follows, which speaks more explicitly in Matthew 25 of the judgment to come. Sometimes we call it the parable of the sheep and goats, but that's not really accurate. It's not a parable. It's very straightforward language. It's speaking very clearly, not under the the cover of a story. The sheep and the goats uh, is what we call a simile. Uh, It's a literary device that just draws attention by way of a brief picture to two very distinct groups. But that's the only uh, imagery in that final paragraph of Matthew 25. Jesus is going to come, we're told. He's going to come in his glory, the angels with him. All the nations will be gathered. And it's clearly the day of judgment. He'll separate all people into two great classes. The sheep will be on his right, um, those like sheep on his right, those like goats on his left. But note that Christ speaks to his beloved people in that day in this way, according to verses 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And he goes on to list other ways in which his beloved people had ministered to his needy brethren. He goes into some detail in affirming his people. And when his followers express a measure of bewilderment as to, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When when did we see you thirsty and bring you drink? Jesus explains that when they did it to one of his needy brothers or sisters, they did it to him. There's such an identification between Christ and his people, that to love a a Christian is to love Jesus. It's a way of demonstrating in a concrete, visible way something that is invisible. But Jesus sees that cable. He sees that what you did when you wrote that note uh, to that person who had been in the hospital, and no one, not not even your spouse, was aware of what you did. I was aware. And I recognize that for what it was, an expression of concern for that person, but also an expression of a real affection for me, a commitment to me that manifested itself in the way that you related to one of my needy people. Note again that there is not a word of criticism. Now this closing paragraph of Matthew 25 is one of the clearest passages in the whole New Testament about what the day of judgment will be like. Now, we're not not left to try to figure out, well, what did Jesus mean by this symbol? It's, It's not symbolic language. It's very straightforward. And in this very straightforward, detailed explanation of what the day of judgment will be, there's not a single word of censure that is given to the people of God. Now, Could Jesus not have pointed out 
the times when we neglected. His people neglected an opportunity to serve one of his brethren in need. I'm ashamed as I think back over my own life at the times when I passed by rather than acting like a good Samaritan and denying myself and getting involved. Could, could Jesus not have exposed the times when the motives of, of his own people were not what they should have been? And in a given moment, what was driving the boat was a concern to maintain a certain image before the eyes of men rather than to honor the God before whom all things are evident. Have there not been times that the Lord could have pointed out concerning his dear sheep when our attitude in helping someone in need was far from ideal and maybe there was a frustration and even an element of resentment that was threatening to overtake us and yet we did the right thing by the grace of God helping us. Surely there has been, even in our best deeds of mercy, blemishes and flaws. Have we ever done anything perfectly in this world? But in this clear setting forth of how Jesus will speak to his people of the day of judgment, there's not a word of, of rebuke. There's not a word of censure. He simply praises his people. Consider a second reason why I do not think that Christ will expose the sins of the righteous at the day of judgment. The Bible teaches that there are ultimately only two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked, those who are in Christ and those who are not. One group will be justified or vindicated at the day of judgment, the other group will be condemned. The Bible teaches that there are ultimately only two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked, believers and unbelievers, those in Christ, those not in Christ. And those two groups of people are viewed justly by heaven in the light of their relationship to Jesus, first and foremost, but also in the light of the totality, the sum character of their lives, their, their hearts, their behavior. And, and that's leading to two black and white verdicts that will be rendered at the day of judgment. One will be justified, the other will be condemned. Matthew 25 makes this point emphatically throughout the entire chapter, including the parable of the virgins in its opening paragraph there are those in this world that are ready for the bridegroom's coming not perfectly so but sincerely so they're looking for Jesus to come back and they are ready then there are those in this world that are not ready for the coming of the bridegroom similarly in the parable of the talents there are those in this world who are faithful in the work that the master has entrusted to them. Again, not perfectly so. The parable, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible is it, is it thought that God's people will ever be perfect in anything in this age. Hallelujah, perfection is coming. There is a day 
that will go on endlessly in which sin will never in any way mar anything we do. But that is to come. But there are people in this world, the parable of the talents and the whole Bible indicates, who the sum total of their lives is one of faithfulness. And then there are those for whom the totality of their lives represents a lack of faithfulness. According to the final paragraph of Matthew 25, there are those who really do love Jesus. And they demonstrate their love of Jesus by their love for his people. And in particular, it comes out in their concern for his distressed people and his suffering people. And then there are those whose absence of love for Jesus is evident by the way that they don't have any special regard for the people of Christ, in particular those who are in need. The day of judgment will reveal a radically different outcome for those two groups, and that's, that's evident. The parable of the ten virgins, uh, one group is welcomed in, the other group is shut out. It's, it's very black and white, it's just A or B. Uh, according to the parable of the talents, there is one who is condemned, and there are two that are commended and rewarded. In the passage on the final judgment at the end, there are those who are condemned to everlasting destruction. All the goats, without exception, they are condemned. All the sheep, without exception, are affirmed and are urged to enter into eternal life. Note this same point in Matthew 12, verses 34 through 37. Turn there with me, if you will, please. Matthew 12, verses 34 through 37. Seeking to demonstrate from Scripture this point about two groups, two ways of life when, when viewed uh, in summation, leading to two destinies at the day of judgment. <clears throat> I'm going to break into this passage in Matthew 12. Many, many of you are familiar with it. Picking up at verse 34, Jesus addressing proud, hypocritical religious leaders who accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan said this, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus here speaks of two kinds of people, those who are good, those who are evil. Jesus speaks of two kinds of hearts. He speaks of out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, there, there are those who have good hearts, according to his language here. There are those who have bad or evil treasure. Jesus speaks of two characteristic ways of speaking. Again, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Those who are evil, uh, their evil heart comes to expression in the words that come out of their mouth. Just as with these religious leaders, uh, 
These were the moral majority, or a part of the moral majority of, of that day. These were people who had a, a parchment of Old Testament scripture that they carried around under their arm. These were people who could quote that scripture from length. These, these were people who could tell you the Ten Commandments in a, in a New York second. These were, these were people who prided themselves on, on being the favorites of heaven, on being the covenant people of God. But they were evil, and the evil in their hearts came out in the way that they spoke of and to Jesus. They blasphemed him, accusing him of doing his great works by the power of the devil. Well, Jesus speaks finally of the day of judgment, rendering two verdicts. One group would be justified. The other group would be condemned, including these Pharisees, if they did not repent and believe on him. Now, Jesus is not suggesting in these verses that the righteous will be both justified and condemned. Certainly, he's not suggesting that the arrogant Pharisees would be not just condemned, but also justified in some measure. Viewing people as a totality in the society of heaven, the religious leaders, evil people, evil hearts, evil words, leading to condemnation. By the grace of God, there are many in this world, and there were people around Jesus in that very moment who did not think of Jesus as one to accuse, but as one to adore. And where the Holy Spirit has regenerated the heart, that will always be what is there, right? There's, there's no such thing as a regenerate person who does not adore the Lord Jesus Christ. And where there is a, an adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ that expresses itself in the way that we speak of him, and the way that we speak to him, such people will be justified or vindicated in the final day. Their words will be brought forth. Words like we sang here this morning that will be the kind of evidence that will come forth at the day of judgment. Evidence that these people, this person, loved Christ, adored Christ. It, it will be evidence because what we sing should be, there are hypocrites, but what we sing should be the expression of what's in our souls. Consider a third main point. The Bible emphasizes that God in grace will not remember the sins of his people. And again, the point that we're aiming at in all of this is, is the question, will there be at least momentarily, some exposure of sin with the righteous at the day of judgment. Will there be, uh, though forgiven, some element of shame and sorrow that will be part and parcel of the experience of those in Christ at the day of judgment? A third reason that I don't think that that will be true is that the Bible emphasizes that God in grace has sworn that he would not remember the transgressions of his people. Now, there are many wonderful texts that could be brought forward. I'll just cite two. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, where God says, I 
I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's, that's a text worth memorizing. I, I am he, the Lord God speaking, who blots out your transgressions, I will not remember your sins. And then perhaps a more familiar text, because it's central to the new covenant, and is mentioned not only in the well-known new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, but is reiterated more than once in the New Testament, where that passage is quoted. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, God is binding himself by oath in pledging, I will forgive their wrongdoing and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will no longer remember. Now this divine pledge is at the heart of the new covenant. The atoning blood of our surety Jesus Christ has blotted out every corrupt thought that you and I have ever had or ever will have if we're in Jesus, if we have been brought to repent of our sins and to believe in the Savior, every corrupt thought that has ever passed down the corridor of our minds, has ever risen in our hearts, has been blotted out. Every word that was unkind, that was untrue, that was unwholesome, it has been erased. Every deed that was out of bounds, that crossed the line, that was sin, it has been forgiven. This is at the heart of the new covenant. Our God has, has, has pledged that this is what I will do. And looking back now on what has happened in Jesus Christ, this is what God has done. Because the, the, the punishment that, that my corrupt thoughts so deserve, the judgment that my evil words so warrant, the, the, the wrath that, that my misdeeds so justify has, was poured out on my substitute and on your substitute, Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the reason why he came. God became man so that he could die in the place of men. So that he, the innocent one, the spotless one, who never had a lustful thought, uh, at least become sinful, sinful, incredibly, he was tempted in all things, but never did he sin in thought, never did he sin in word or deed. And yet he lives so as to die in the place of people like me and you who have sinned every day of our lives. And he absorbed the, punish, the punishment that we deserved. And he took into his own holy person the wrath that, that our sins cried out for. And he did it so that our sins would be remembered no more. God hasn't swept anything under a rug. God knows the whole truth 
about me and about you. But God faced those sins squarely at Calvary and promised that on that basis, he would remember our lawless deeds no more. It's true, of course, that God does not absolutely forget our transgressions. That would be a denial of his omniscience. God is not capable of an absolute, what's the word, amnesia, Mike? Uh, when we uh, forget, God is not capable of that. He is, he is omniscient. And we ourselves will not completely forget what we were. You do a study of Revelation and of the scenes of heaven that are given there. And how, how is Jesus identified prominently, repeatedly in the book of Revelation? He's the lamb, right? He's the lamb of God. John the Baptist had proclaimed, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in heaven, according to the pictures given to us in the book of Revelation, there is an unceasing song that is marveling at the lamb. He is a lamb that the wicked should tremble before, but he is a lamb. And what's at the heart of that imagery? Well, you know that the heart of that imagery is that he was the one who was sacrificed. He lives. He came forth from the dead, and he lives in heaven forever with an endless life that he gives freely to all those who come to him. But he'll never stop being the lamb and he'll always be that in the memories of his people. Ten billion years from now, we will still be conscious. This is the one who gave himself so completely for, for my sins. And miraculously, in some way, we'll be able to have a consciousness that he died for our sins without those sins causing pain in heaven. That, there's a miraculous element to that but I don't think we'll ever forget what we were and what Jesus saved us from I, I think heaven will be like you know you're backpacking and you come up on a on a hill and you hadn't been able to see on the other side of it and you get to the top of that rise and a whole new vista opens up before you it's like wow and, and heaven will just be endlessly coming to new places of wow this is what Jesus did for me. And the sense of, of wonder will never grow old or boring. But all that said, at the day of judgment, is it consistent with the centrality of the promise, I will remember your sins no more, to think that in that day, at least for a few moments, Jesus will say, now, we do need to remember your sins. Publicly, before a world of angels and men, we need, we need to, to let the video roll, and we need to just face the truth. And, and y'all, it is the truth. I, I was that bad. I did think in that way. I 
I did have those fantasies. It is the truth. But is it? It seems to me that the promise that those sins will be remembered no more, sins that I never talked about with anyone except Jesus, that, that we can infer from that that the day of judgment will not involve some moments of shame and weeping, but rather that it will be a day of rejoicing. Which brings me to my fourth and final reason. The day of judgment in the New Testament (coughs) is presented as a day of great joy for those who have loved the thought of Jesus coming again. In the New Testament, the day of judgment is not presented as a boogeyman. Um, it, is, it is a day of, of joy that the people of Christ should anticipate with joy. And again, does not the whole of Matthew 25 point to that? The parable of the ten virgins gives us no detail over what the five virgins who were ready experienced, but but we infer that, boy, what a happy day. The bridegroom came. The wedding day came. And they were welcomed in. And the party began. And, And that's pointing to something that is uh, a fairly significant theme in Scripture, that when Jesus comes again, it will be the time when his betrothed bride, the church, will be married to him. It will be a glorious wedding day. Now, who, when we think about Christ and all of his holiness, we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we think of this holy creator, this holy savior, looking at someone like me, looking at someone like you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, who can fathom fully the joy, the wonder of that. Yes, there may be a profound sense, there may be an overwhelming sense of how unworthy we are of that. We do know something of the truth of what kind of people we've been. But to think of Christ speaking in that way, of of saying, I remember when you visited that person in the hospital. I remember when you took care of those children and you weren't feeling well and yet you went the extra mile because you knew your sister had a need. I remember when you prayed for somebody, you stopped and you prayed for that person who can fathom the wonder of what that will be like when Jesus according to scripture, speaks to his people in that way. One of my favorite benedictions in the Bible is at the close of the short New Testament epistle of Jude. In Jude verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you To make you stand in his presence, blameless 
with great, what? Joy. That's what God has said. That there is a Savior who is so able, who is so willing, who has done so much that he, he can and will keep his people from fatally stumbling and will bring them to this great tribunal awaiting all men, blameless with great joy. In conclusion, consider three things I am not saying. First, I am not saying that Christ's followers should not experience any fear or dread in connection with the coming day of the Lord. I am not saying that Christ's followers should not experience any fear or dread in connection with the coming day of the Lord. When we look at all that the Bible says about that coming great day, it's one of the reasons why we should tremble before the word of God. That's biblical. That's true spirituality. We rejoice, but there are reasons for trembling. Isaiah 66 verse 2. Christ the judge will condemn the multitudes that refuse to repent and believe. According to Matthew 25, verse 41, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Beth and I have the privilege of having eight grandchildren now and are joyfully anticipating number nine and number ten who may be born on the same day in God's providence. The mothers are due within two days of one another. And I believe that one of the reasons that God is keeping me alive to this point is to pray for those grandchildren, none of whom are older than nine at this point. It's a terrifying thought to think of one of those children being sent into the everlasting flames when I think of the day of judgment I do think blameless joy but also tremble because I have family and I have friends they are not ready to meet Christ as judge the good news the great news is that we can know Jesus as our friend before we meet him as our judge. Are you ready for that day? Children, young people, adults, are you ready for this day? It's not going to be a happy day for everybody. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? Know him as your savior. You will certainly face him as your judge. Second, I'm not saying that Christ's followers 
should never experience any fear in connection with what they themselves could face at that great day. I'm not saying that Christ's followers should never experience any fear in connection with what they themselves might face at that great day. Even in the garden paradise of Eden, the Lord wanted Adam to be afraid of sinning, right? What, what, what was the one explicit motive that the Lord verbalized to Adam before sin had come into the, into the world as to why Adam shouldn't sin? God said, you'll die. Don't, don't do what's forbidden. In that day, you'll die. And the Lord didn't want his son to, to live in constant apprehension. But he did want his son, when he contemplated a path of defying his maker, he did want Adam to shake a bit in his skin at that point. It's appropriate to be afraid of sinning. Maybe there are some in a gathering of this size, you've, you've lost that. But even in the new covenant, God, God uses as part of the overall motivational complex for his people the element of fear. He warns against deception, self-deception. He warns against hypocrisy. He tells his new covenant people that he is a consuming fire. And that it is a necessity that one overcome and endure to the end if he or she would be saved. And many times in the New Testament, there is an implied, if not an explicit threat, of what will happen if we don't take seriously the command to pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Day of Judgment is going to reveal the real Stu Johnston. And there are moments where, where, I, where I struggle over who is the roast Johnston. We need, we need a Savior today as much as we ever did. We need Jesus to bring us home all the way. Third, I'm not saying that every true follower of Christ will receive the same measure of affirmation and reward at the last day. I'm not saying that every true follower of Christ will receive the same measure of affirmation and reward at the last day. Jesus will commend all of his friends, but not in a way that ignores real differences in how individuals lived. Hebrews 11 reflects on Old Testament saints, men and women who exhibited faith. And we've often thought perhaps with an element of surprise as to Samson being included there. Because if you just read the narrative of his life and judges, he's less than impressive in certain ways, while his extraordinary feats of strength obviously are impressive. Morally, spiritually, 
He's not an impressive man, but Hebrews 11 tells us that he had faith. There's more to Samson than immediately meets the eyes you read his life in Judges. Well, Samson's in heaven, and Samson will be commended at the day of judgment. But surely, he won't be rewarded to the same degree that the prophet Daniel will be, who was so outstanding in his stability of godliness, so, so faithful, so consistent. We, we don't even pick up clearly on, on sin. We, we know from Scripture that he wasn't perfect, that he needed a Savior just like we did. But you read his life, and it's unblemished. Well, Daniel will no doubt receive a larger reward than Samson will. And that will be true throughout the whole. According to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, the final day will disclose the true character of each minister's work. Verse 15 warns, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. The Lord will not reward those ministers who did a lot of building with wood, stubble, and hay in the same way that he will reward those that built with gold and with silver upon the one true foundation. We have reason to take seriously Christ's call to lay up treasures in heaven where we have done our religious deeds to impress others. We'll get our reward in this life, that's it. There won't be additional rewards there. And Jesus takes seriously the motive of rewards. Think about that and going to war against that tendency to be unduly concerned with what others think. There'll be surprises on that day and we'll see more than ever the last shall be first. The great day will make it very clear that Jesus Christ is the main character. So grateful that we could read Philippians 2 uh, as our responsive reading this morning. And on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus in his grace will look down upon the multitudes of his people and will speak to each one individually in ways that will be an overwhelming expression of the grace and the mercy that has so marked him in all of his dealings with us. He will have words of affirmation. And for those of us who know him, that will not fill us with a sense of how wonderful we've been. That will fill us with a sense more than anything we've ever experienced of the grace that is greater than all our sin. The realization that he loved me and gave himself for me. It will be the happiest day of our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the opportunity to ponder these things. We pray that your word would not return empty, but accomplish everything that you've sent it out to achieve. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.